If uh, you have a Bible and you want to open to the beginning, uh, that's where, where we're talking through. We were, I had planned to do this series on Genesis, on how things, <clears throat> excuse me, how things started. And uh, people, uh, due to popular demand, we're going to keep going in Genesis, uh, at least through the end of school, uh, up to, if you know the Bible, we're going to go up to the story of Joseph, but we'll stop there, and uh, you can go to the musical and catch that part, but... Uh, well, I want to stop there, but you know how that goes. Uh, so we are, uh, today we're, I'm going to talk about uh, Abram, and, uh, or who you may know as Abraham, his name changes at one point in his life, uh, and we're going to talk about his interaction with God and how God called him, uh, and it's the end of Genesis 11, beginning of Genesis 12, easily, uh, well, it's easily one of my favorite passages in Scripture because of the shift that happens uh, in the people of God or in what it means to be a person of God. And uh, um, it is a, it's why I wanted to end here because I think this is the end of the beginning, if, if that makes sense. And so we're going to, uh, I'm going to read through the passage and then we'll talk through it a little bit and kind of see uh, where Abraham is going or uh, just Abraham is going and, uh, and what effect it has on us today. So, <clears throat> so you know, before I read this, Genesis 11, if you were here last week or weren't here last week, includes this story, the Tower of Babel, uh, where the people were trying to glorify themselves and make gods out of themselves or make themselves known as gods, and, and God confuses their language, and so the people spread out and move all over. And then the second half of Genesis 11 is this, just this list of names. And this happens a few times in the Bible, especially at the beginning of Genesis, where they just list this guy had this son, and this guy had two sons, and this guy lived this long, and then he had this son, and then he lived this many more years. And when we read that, that's insanely boring. And, uh, but for the original audience, it means everything. And we'll talk about that a little bit, because I'm going to read part of that, all right? And what I'm going to do is say all the names with confidence. This is what they teach you at pastor school. And uh, because... Previous to this generation, you couldn't just look it up on your phone how to say it, and so you assumed your pastor was right, you know, and, uh, and so there are some places and names, not in this passage, that sound like bad words, and, uh, and the pastor would say them with a different enunciation, and you would think, oh, good, you know, like, and you wouldn't know how to really say it, but so um, I'm going to read through the names quickly and confidently, and, uh, and that's how you know I'm a pastor. <laughs> Genesis eleven twenty seven. This is the account of uh, Terah. Uh, Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. While his father, Terah, was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans, in the land of his birth. Abram and Nahor both married. And the name of Abram's wife, Abram's wife was Sarai, and the, or Sarah, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. Uh, she was the daughter of Haran. I'm just going to stop there for a second and let you notice that. Yep, daughter of his brother. All right. <laughs> the father of both Milcah and Iscah. So there's two Milcahs. And now uh, Sarah was born. Oh, sorry, there's only one. Uh, now Sarah was born, and she had no children. Uh, Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Aaron, and his daughter-in-law Sarah, and the wife of his son Abraham. And together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. 
But when they came to Haran, they settled there. A little family history. Terah lived 205 years, and he died in Haran. And the Lord in Haran said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. We'll stop there. If you've ever traveled like in the world and, uh, and you go somewhere and you're wearing like the shirt of your favorite college team and somebody else is there and they see and they come up to you and they're like, I used to live in Oregon, right? And or, I lived in Corvallis or I lived in Eugene and and there's like this weird excitement and bond that happens when you're in Europe or Russia or Africa and you're wearing a baseball hat from a team and someone else is from that city, right? Like you have this strange connection that happens. Uh, or if you're wearing uh, like an America shirt, uh, you've got a bald eagle that's carrying a flag in his claws and stuff. That's how I'm, and, and if you just wear that, other Americans recognize fellow Americans and and you, you go up and there's this weird ex- excitement that happens. Uh, and, and it's, I will say, it's a little bit different for America because America is like the strongest and greatest and richest and most influential country that's ever existed in the history of the world, right? You can amen that. Go ahead. You can get excited about it. As a Canadian, I will say we are the best neighbors in the history of, of the world, <laughs> But anyways, <laughs> the, uh, but when you see each other, you have this connection, uh, and, and you just have it. It's similar to when you go to like a family reunion, and, and if you've moved afar from your family, and you go back to wherever your family is from, and you meet these cousins who you don't even know, but you have this weird bond between you and them because you share a common ancestry or you know where you're from, you know, or if you have a a last name with a history, like I have a last name with a history and you can look back and find out how my clan got its name and what it meant and where we're from and the the kind of Scottish dress we wear when we don't have a lot of friends. And uh, it's the kind of things that uh, you just bond you and give you some kind of strange sense of identity. I am of this, or I am from here. When we think of our identity today, less and less uh, is our identity defined by like our family, right? More and more our identity is formed by other things like work or or relationships that we have or uh, decisions that we have made in our life or uh, groups of people that we've decided to identify with through dress or culture and those kinds of things. Uh, less and less are you uh, this because you were born into that family or born in that country or born in that place. But in the ancient times, when you would read through, like in the ancient Near East, you would read through this list of family names. It wasn't because they wanted to know history really well. Like if you're into history and you think this is about the history, it's, it's really not. We use it for the history because it's interesting to find out things. But they used it because it told them who they were. It told them where they were from. In fact, if you look through the scripture, you can actually poke holes in some of these 
Because when you had a bad ancestor, they just left you out. They would just be like, and this person begat this person, and this person begat this person, and they gave birth to this person, but that was really their grandson, but everyone knew we don't talk about that middle guy, right? It's kind of like we're all praying that Queen Elizabeth lives long time so we don't have to deal with King Charles, right? Like we just want to skip that guy and move down to the grandkids that are having kids and they're beautiful and they're very good at being celebrities. And because that's what being royal is all about. <laughs> but there is this, uh, like, sense, like, we look at this with this scientific sense that we can now tell, like, during the genealogies that are given before Noah, we can tell who died in the flood. Noah's grandfather actually died in the flood. Uh, if, we, if the numbers don't leave anyone out, you, the years line up to the year of the flood. But what we, when the ancient Near East, Israelites and other cultures would look at this, they would say, oh, so that's who you are. And this is the line uh, of Abram, but it's from Shem, uh, who is, and these all line up to tell where you come from, and you come from this person and this person and this person and this person. And so who you were was shaped by who your family was, and who your father was, and your father's father and your father's father's father, and all that. And I come from this line of these people, and this is who I am. And so when we're introduced to Abram in this passage, and Abraham, or Abram, so you know, I'm going to say both all the time and stop correcting myself. Uh, he later changes his name to Abraham, and so same dude, and we're just going to say it however we feel like saying it this morning. He's an important figure in all the major religions in the world. Uh, he's claimed by Judaism, he's claimed by Islam, and he's claimed by uh, Christianity. Uh, he is this, in history, outside of Jesus, he is the most significant person in history. There hasn't been a leader or a figure in history that's more influential or more uh, circumstantial for humanity. And so Abraham and where he's from is wildly important because from him comes this family tree that fractions off, and we see the fraction religiously as Christianity and Judaism and Islam is all fractured off of, uh, would claim a common ancestry back to Abraham. But Abraham, who he was, is defined not by what we do with him, but who his family was. And so he was, from the line of Seth, he was the son of Terah. He was the family that moved towards Canaan but only made it to Haran, uh, who was his brother. Now, Abraham is married, and you can read in the passage I mentioned it, but we just kind of went past it. Um, this is verse 29. The name of Abram's wife was Sarah, or Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, and she was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarah was barren. She had no children. If Sarah was barren, she had no children. To us, it's just, it's a tragedy. It's sad, right? She couldn't do something that she wanted to do. But for the ancient Near Israelites, ancient Near East and the ancient Israelites reading this, she couldn't be anyone. It wasn't just that she couldn't have children. It's that she was the end 
of Abraham's line. She would be the last, or Abraham would be the last. Like the tragedy here isn't just a personal tragedy. When they're reading into this, the family is stopping, which means who you are is actually ending. As much as we feel this, and you and I have either experienced this or have close friends who've experienced what the Bible calls barrenness, and as much as that's difficult, we don't think that I'm no longer a person. And you might, in a depressive kind of way, think that, but you don't think that about your friends who can't have kids. Oh, they're destroying a family line. Oh, they're, they are the end. Because our identity doesn't come from these things. And, and, and this kind of stuff is real and it's difficult, but it's magnified when who you are is defined by the family relationships that you have. There would be no continuance of this line. You see, there may have been other people who were barren or other people who didn't have children, and they're not mentioned. You know why they're not mentioned? Because there's no line. It would just be the end of the genealogy. So they become footnotes or extra people. They're not the line of the people. Abraham marries. And the woman that he marries, though he loves her, and she is stunningly beautiful, as we'll see over and over, he lies about his relationship with her because he's afraid other men will kill him because his wife is so stunning. I know, guys. This is a good compliment to give your wife. Let's go out, but pretend to be brother and sister because I'm afraid people will kill me because you're looking so fine today. <laughs> All right? You want to use that line? It's biblical, but never works out in the end. All right? Never. Like, ne that's a compliment, but don't ever, like, actually try that out. All right? That was not in my notes. That was just, that's like a free one for you today. <laughs> so Abraham marries Sarah, and the idea in marriage is more than just, this is the person I fell in love with. The idea in marriage is to carry on a family line. The idea in marriage is to make m myself a part of this chain of the people who God is using in order to glorify himself and spread his name throughout the world. And when Abraham marries Sarah and she's barren, the real news for Abraham is that this is the end. Is that the, you will not have a line of people. When Abraham would read or hear the lists of names of the people who came before him, he knew that his name wouldn't be there even though it belonged there. Because they hadn't obviously written this part of the scripture yet because Abraham's living it. But his expectation would be that Terah became the father of Nahor and Haran and other children. And that list, that's in the scripture. They say this is who they had and they had many other children. Those many other children, we don't know who they are and nobody cares 
And Abraham is looking at this is what my life is going to be. Like the, the feeling that Abraham had to have with this woman who he loves, but with this woman, this is the end. We won't be carrying on. We won't be mentioned in the history books, even though my father will be, and my brothers will be, and my brother's children will be. We won't. Now, if you know the story, it turns out kind of happy in a roundabout kind of way, and they have kids, and Father Abraham had many sons, sir. Yes, he did. <laughs> we'll get to that song later. But in this situation... What Abram is feeling is more than just, oh, we can't have kids. It's, I'm just an extra here now. Like, I'm not chosen. I'm not going to be part of this grand story that God is writing. I'm not a part of God glorifying himself. I'm just here. And maybe he'll contribute to other people, and he actually takes his nephew a lot, and they travel together, and and they, uh, they go, and he becomes rich, and he becomes a grand warrior and stuff like that and helps his family out. But he lives with this weird abandon because he knows, well, this is over for me. And so he moves with his family. He moves with his family. Uh, Terah took Abram, his grandson Lot, the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarah, and his wife, the wife of his son Abram, and together they set out from Ur, uh, of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they stopped there. And Terah lives 205 years, and then he dies. But the Lord, while they're in Haran, says to Abraham, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. When we read that, that's normal. This is going to college a year abroad. Leave your country and your people and your father's household. Okay. <laughs> right? Like all those things sound exciting. But for a person whose identity is rooted in these very things, I'm from this place, I'm from these people, I am a part of my father's household. Abram is already feeling like one step disconnected because he knows he's the end of a line. And now God is saying, we want you to completely disconnect. Like we want you to just leave. Just leave and go to this other place. Stop being this person and go be someone else. And the promise is, go to the land I will show you. So stop being this person and be somebody that I'm going to tell you about later. Like if God calls you to that, the sensible answer is, no thank you, God. Because God wouldn't call me to something like that. It's a strange thing for when you hear a person say, I'm going to leave, like, we don't do this anymore. Missionaries today go to places and they travel back and forth all the time and they Skype back and forth all the time. It's like they're, like they're with us. But there were grand missionaries like Hudson Taylor and David Livingston and Amy Carmichael. Uh, you can Google these people. Uh, Amy Carmichael moved to China and didn't come back. She left everything who she was and who she knew and moved to China in order to tell people about Jesus and the, there was no like why would I go back she didn't she had this call on her life where it didn't make sense to go back 
She's like, no, this is where I go. This is where God has called me to. This is what I'm doing. I'm going over there. David Livingston, so you know, these, are, these missionaries are boss hog. And they, David Livingston went to Africa. I know nobody reads missionary biographies, but you should. Uh, and, and that might make me a nerd, but you really should. David Livingston goes to Africa, and his missionary society writes him a letter, right? And they're like, hey, are there any good roads developed yet that we can send more men to help you? And he said, if the men you've got are the kind of men that need roads, don't bother sending them. <laughs> it, it's awesome. Like, uh, we're going to go and tell people about Jesus where regular people won't go, all right? And, and so you know, this still happens today. There are places in the world, and it's usually, uh, it's in the 1040 window, and it's usually violent Islamic countries where Christians are gathering together and going into places and hoping that someone listens to them instead of killing them. Uh, this, like, like, this happens this year. It happened last year. Like, this isn't a... I know we're not landing on a boat on the continent of Africa and trying to find a road anymore. We've, there's an infrastructure in the country of Africa, but there are places in the world that are wildly hostile to Christianity, and men and women are being called to leave everything they know and go to a place hoping that God will show them something. And we look at those, and we're like, those people are heroes until your son or daughter comes to you and says, I think God is calling me to do something. My Bible college that I went to hands out a business degree that's a secret missions degree, but it's called a business degree so that those people can go into closed countries and secretly share the gospel, and if they're caught, they're arrested. This denomination, no, 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 we should cut this out of the podcast, uh, we do annual reports where we assign people to do missions, and we have people who are not written down, who we talk about in unrecorded audio sessions because they are in closed countries doing ministry people from this denomination, that we can't talk about their names or talk about where they're going and make that public because they're in places that's a hazard to their own safety, because they felt called to go and do something. Those people don't come back and hand out prayer cards with their name on it that says missionary. And I'm not saying that they're better missionaries or something different. I'm saying they're called to do something that is really exciting but you don't want your kids called to that, do you? Maybe some days you do, but in general, <laughs> we're going to keep it real on Mother's Day, but in general, if your kid comes to you and says, I want to go to this country where Christianity is legal and help people know who Jesus is, that's a terrifying thing. I mean, it's a terrifying thing when they say they want to go to a college that's more than an hour away, right? Like, I understand that. But there is this fear that is involved in that. When Abram goes and says to his family, God has called me to leave here, to leave everything I know. And what I know is great. And I love my family, and I love my father's household, and I love living here. But God has called me to go. Okay, where are you going? I'm not sure. Well, why don't you just hang out here till God tells you where you're going? What if you start going in the wrong direction? Well, no, God called me to go, so I'm going. Abraham walking into God's calling is the first genuinely crazy thing that happens in the Scripture. And we've already had Tower of Babel and Noah building a boat because God told him to. 
Like building a boat because God told you to, that's kind of tame compared to I'm going to leave my entire identity and become an entirely different person because God has told me to. When your kids come to you and says, I'm turning in my American passport because I'm not coming back. And I'm going over there and I'm not going to use my real name because that might put my family in danger. And I'm never going to come back here and I'm going to tell those people about Jesus. That's the strangest thing that a person could say. I'm going to do this thing that God wants me to do, and I don't think I'm coming back. It's not the kind of thing that Abram's family would have said, right on, you know? It's not the kind of thing that they would have said, this is what God wants us to do. When I was a youth pastor, this was the kind of thing where I'd get a call from the mom and dad. Hey, we need you to talk sense into our kid. They believe following God's call is something they need to actually do. (laughs) Once they mature, they can stop being so on fire for Jesus. (laughs) And then I would call them and say, I think this is a terrible idea, and it's exactly why you should do it. It's like... It's my same answer when a kid wondered, should I get a tattoo? That's a terrible idea. Totally. All right? It's a good way to live life. This is a terrible idea. I'm going to try it. As long as it's not illegal. (laughs) But there is this sense of Abram doing something, and we want to make Abram into this hero of the faith. And in the initial community he was in, at least he would have had doubts, and then much more the people that he spoke to would have carried doubts as well. And so God gives Abram this promise. And this is, uh, this is called the Abrahamic covenant or the Abrahamic covenant. And covenants are this, uh, there's several covenants through the scripture that happen where God makes a promise to people. And sometimes there's unconditional promises in there and sometimes there's conditional promises where um, like the, the new covenant sealed in Jesus' blood is an unconditional covenant in the sense that Jesus has died for the sins of the world, but it's conditional in the sense that those who call upon the name of the Lord and, and see Jesus as their Lord and Savior, those are the people to whom the covenant, the rewards of the covenant actually apply. So there's an, a covenant with Adam, there's a covenant with Noah, uh, where the rainbow and, and I will never destroy the earth again. That's God's promise, that's a covenant. And so this is a covenant. The reason that's important is because the covenants don't just apply to the person who the promise is made to or through. The covenants are carry on, like it wasn't just for Noah. For Noah, I won't destroy the earth with a flood. It's that God is saying, I will never do this. And so all people who are descendants of Noah, which is everybody, uh, we all live under the assurance that God won't flood the earth in order to destroy humanity. And so this promise that is given in Genesis chapter 12 is a promise for all humanity for the rest of time. The Lord said to Abraham, leave your country and your people and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. Now when he says you, what he's actually meaning is Abraham and Abraham's descendants. So there are some people for whom the first promises exclude the people who aren't descendants of Abraham. Now, Abraham's wife is barren. And so when Abraham hears this, he's not thinking, oh, my descendants, because he is not 
thinking he's going to have descendants. We know he does in the end. But at the time, he's thinking this is very, very personal. I will make you into a great nation. Now, so you know, that means Abraham's going to have to become a good businessman and a violent warrior. If he's not having children to build his nation, he's going to have to take over another nation and, and bring them into his nation. Uh, kind of quasi-adoption by violent and business means. <laughs> An adoption with all the worst parts of adoption. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. He's promising Abraham the thing that Abraham knows he will never have. Leave everything you know. Go to a place I will show you and I will give you everything you know that you will never have. I'd go too. At this moment, I say I'm never going to have the things that I want to be a part of a list of names, to have a nation or a people who are the people of Abram, the line of Abram. And God says, I'm going to give that to you. And I say, all right, I know I'm not going to have that through natural childbirth means, but let's go. And Abram becomes this great warrior and he becomes a smart businessman. And he builds his community of people who rally around him and he becomes something. But in this, God says to Abraham, I will bless you and make you into a great nation and I will bless you. And so there are people who are discluded from this. Now, the people of Abraham are, according to the people who were in the ancient nation of Israel, they would say, we are the children of Abraham. And Jesus had these arguments with people because Jesus was a Jewish person, and he had these arguments with the Jewish leaders who said, we are the children of Abraham, so we live under the promise of God that God will make us great, and God will make us into a great nation. See, this promise, when Abraham just thinks it applies to him, it actually applies to the nation or to the people of Abraham. And so the the like political and religious powers in the time of Jesus. If you know the scripture, this means like the people who were Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, teachers of the law, considered themselves, we are the children of Abraham. And Jesus actually messed that all up, as Jesus tends to do when we think we're powerful. And, and you can read in further writings in the very early church, like Galatians chapter 6, where it talks about the true Israel are the people who are in God's family, and to be in God's family, to be adopted into God's family, means you've put your full faith and trust in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. In his perfect life, his real death, his actual resurrection, and his eternal life in heaven. And so this promise actually applies, if you're a follower of Jesus, to the followers of Jesus through Abraham, because you've been grafted into that line according to the Scripture. And so this promise actually isn't just a promise for Abraham. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is a promise to you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. The promise of the Scripture to you. Now, if you're American, you say, check for the first one. I'm part of a great nation. 
And I know in the political season that has a lot with it, but I really stink and love America, all right? Like, you were born here, I moved here, right? Like, I'm, I'm, I'm a, ch- I'm chose America. You were just, you just like were born with a lottery ticket, you know? <laughs> and I know I say that facetiously because I serve the queen and blah, 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 blah. But at the end of the day, it's snowing where I grew up, all right? So it really, really is. I do not understand why they don't move, all right? Anyways, <laughs> I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. Check, we've been blessed. I will make your name great. Check, I have 200 Twitter followers. Abraham would think that's remarkable. All right? <laughs> I have followers on Snapchat. I'm on Snapchat if you're interested in wasting your life. Um, I will make your name great and you will be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse this is a strange part of the promise because we the nation of Israel and the Christians tend to like to stop right there like I I will make you into a great nation I will bless you and I will make your name great and you will be a blessing all right that well let's stop at the beginning we will be great we will be blessed and our name will be great. We like those ones, right? Like we really like those ones. I want to be awesome and I want God to be in charge of making me awesome. But then I have a problem when it says, and you will be a blessing, because it's like, oh, God is making me awesome for the benefit of others? Uh, How about for the benefit of me? And as soon as we get that mixed up, as soon as we transition God's blessing on us for our sake instead of for others' sake, we fall into things like colonialism in Christianity or trying to overtake everyone or in uh, sometimes you transfer into like a prosperity theology where the more blessed I am, the more favored by God I am. When God may be trying to make you, uh, the easy thing is that God is trying to make you into a conduit of his blessing, not a receptor of his blessing. God is blessing you because he's giving you relationships in the world through which he can glorify himself by blessing others. And then God says this, and this is an interesting thing, so you know. Like, sorry, let me say this. Verse 2, you should catch that by now, all right? So if you think God exists to make you happy, you need to stop thinking that and start thinking God exists to make you happy because you're making other people happy. Does that make sense? So stop living for yourself and live for others and everything will be better. All right. Three. I get cranky, but we haven't caught that yet. Three. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse who, and whoever curses you, I will curse. Now, sometimes we like to help God out with that. We'll bless people who bless us, and we'll curse out people who curse us. And we're like, this is biblical. I'm helping you out, Jesus. But then it says this, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. All the people on earth will be blessed through you. If it says... I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you, but all the people on earth will be blessed through you. Who's going to be cursed? And so we put ourselves in charge of that. The people who cut us off, the people who pay with checks in the grocery line, right? We curse them, and we're like, you're ruining my day, and God wants to ruin your day. But God says this, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And that screws up our cursing of people. 
And hopefully you're not literally putting a curse on people, but you're probably cursing at them. We want all people to be blessed. I will, God will bless the people who bless the people of the Abrahamic covenant, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Which means the relationship of the people who are under the Abrahamic covenant is one of blessing between the, them and the people who are not under the Abrahamic covenant. Meaning this, everyone who's not a believer should be able to say, it's good that I know James. And James should be able to say, all the people who are not Christians, it's good that I know them. I'm glad I have them in my life. It's kind of a strange relationship because there's some people who I don't want in my life. Like there's some people who are definitely not a blessing to me. <laughs> and there's some people in your life who are definitely not a blessing. And this isn't some kind of a math equation where it's like all peoples means everyone, but it means in general. And so in general, the relationship between the Christian and the non-Christian, the experience of that relationship should be completely positive. Where the person who doesn't know Jesus, who doesn't want to know Jesus, is actually glad for the Christians that they have in their life. They may say, I don't want to be that. I don't understand that. But the Christians who live in my neighborhood make my neighborhood better. The Christians who I know in my life actually add to my life. And the Christians should say, there are people in my neighborhood who don't know Jesus, and I'm glad they're in my neighborhood. This is where things start to get practical and uncomfortable. When, back when we loved Amen in all the America stuff, now we're like, whoa, wait a second. Because this is actually saying some things that are difficult to live out. It's actually, like admittedly, difficult to live out being a blessing with actual real life people in my neighborhood in such a way that they say, I'm really glad that Christians moved in across from me. And part of that, I think, people, there are people who don't know any Christians. Uh, or maybe they don't know that they know any Christians. And so their uh, perception of Christianity becomes the loudest Christians, not the friendliest Christians. And so there are Christians with access to media or television shows that may say things and do things uh, or protest things in a way that is not experienced as a blessing. It goes the other way too, though, when in our culture, if you disagree with someone, they think it's persecution. Where you'll say, well, I don't agree with that. Well, then you're offending me. Being offended is like, in my opinion, like a gift. Like it means you're alive, right? Like there should be things in your life that offend you. I mean, if you go to this church, I help you with that. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, I think Jesus interacted with the world that way. There were things that offended Jesus, and Jesus offended people. And he never went on Facebook and cried about it. And you say, well, he couldn't. He's Jesus. He could have if he wanted to. 
That's a dumb thing to say, but it's true. <laughs> it's true, but wasting time. When we have this relationship with the world, with the people who don't believe the things that we believe, you should not be surprised that at times it becomes difficult. Because if it's difficult, it reveals that you're trying to have a relationship with the world that is one of blessing, of mutual blessing. If you see the world or non-Christians as your enemy, and they see you as their enemy, then you're not going to feel any tension because you don't feel like you need to bless them or experience blessing in your relationship with them. If, as I'm talking, you're saying, dang, James, that's hard. That's exactly where you want to be. Because the problems come up in the church whenever they say, or the people of God, it comes up whenever they say, we've got this figured out. How do we love someone when this how does the church, or Christians in general, interact with this part of culture, which we believe stands in direct opposition to our beliefs? That's genuinely hard. And I think there's a temptation for us uh, to try to find an easy way. And so we either uh, change our beliefs, or we uh, attack and overcome and set ourselves up as enemies. Because then we don't have to feel the tension of needing to be a blessing to people who disagree with us, and, and I mean disagree on closed-handed issues, things we should not change on. That tension that you feel in Christianity is actually this image that you should feel of Abram going to his family and saying, I think God wants me to do this over here, and everyone going, I do not know about that. The following Jesus in the way that is a blessing to the world around you will mean you'll experience this thing where I'm like, I'm not sure if I should do this or not. I get emails every now and then and, and people will say, uh, I got invited to this wedding and it's my coworker and I don't necessarily agree with this union theologically. Do I go or no? And no matter what they choose, I love that they're feeling that tension. And I don't, oh, this is horrid. I don't know what the right answer is, right? Like, I don't know well, whether to go or not. I don't know. And so when you email me, it's a terrible answer. I'm praying for you, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, <laughs> can you fill your calendar with something else? <laughs> the, the, you end up with this tension and, and that's just in our culture, that just seems to be the question right now for people who hold to a certain understanding of the Scripture. But this isn't something new, it's just a new issue. Throughout Christianity, all the way back to Abraham, following Jesus means being a blessing to the world. And being a blessing to the world, in an actual blessing to the world, means wondering, am I doing the right thing? When Jesus was on earth, and this is the last thing I want to point out, his critics criticized him because he hung out with drunks. Jesus literally went to parties where people were getting blasted to love those people. Now, is that a ministry this church is starting? 
We're going to go to parties where people are getting blasted and help them be safe. If we did start that, we probably wouldn't put it on the website. But is it a real ministry? And if you're a person who had non-Christian friends in college, like I did, you've probably been in that situation, and you've probably wondered, should I be in this situation? When I went through my boot camp when I was in the Canadian Army Reserves, after so many weeks, you get to go out. And when you get to go out, that means you go out. Like, you have 48 hours to be as destructive as possible. And I was not a person who thought drunkenness was the way that Christians should live, and so I didn't, because the Bible says so, and so I didn't get drunk. Uh, I am Canadian, though, so I drank alcohol. But when I was there, the guys who were engaged would ask me to help them because they didn't want to screw their lives up. And so I had this weird Christian ministry of helping marriages. And I'm sitting there the whole time going, is this where I'm supposed to be? And there were places, there were some places that I wouldn't go. No, that's past my limit. Like I won't go into that place or that place, but I will go into this place or this place because of the way the different places work. And I will help you to get back to your bed at night so you're not sleeping in a ditch. But should I be helping them? In those moments, if you're out there by yourself, you're wondering, am I being a Christian? Like, if Jesus showed up right now, would he go, hey, James, you're doing a good job? And I really wonder that stuff. And when I read the scripture, and I've got 15 years into my life, I think when Jesus comes to earth and he's standing next to me, he would say, hey, James, I wonder if we're doing this right. <laughs> I think in the question of loving the people around us and being a blessing to our community, in that tension is where we find Jesus because it's where we find Abraham and it's where we find Noah and it's where we find Moses and eventually it's where we find Joseph and Samuel and David and the Old Testament prophets Jesus himself, the disciples, the Apostle Paul, all of those people lived with this tension of, I think this is what God wants me to do, and I sure hope I'm being faithful to calling him, to following him. Some of you right now are in those situations or in those relationships, and you're wondering, I have no idea what it means to be Christian in this situation. And what I want you to know today is that's what it means to be Christian in that situation. I'm following Jesus, and I'm not sure I'm doing it right. That means you're doing it right. If you're convinced that everything you do is exactly what God wants you to do, I would say you're not living far enough into being a blessing to the world around you. And I understand that's a weird thing to say. Because at some point you think, I'm going to figure this life out. Like in my 80s or 90s, I'm going to be an effective Christian. And the 80 and 90-year-old Christians that I've talked to have been Christians longer than you've been alive. They say, I think I'm starting to figure it out. It's the most depressing thing they can tell you. Because you think at some point I'll have this down. 
And having it down is a false God that you're chasing after that I hope you never find. Instead, I want you to know that in the tension that you're living in as you try to bless the world around you, as the Christians around you commiserate with you and say, I'm not sure what you should do in that situation. I want you to know that if you're trying to find Jesus in that situation, that's exactly where he is. As Jesus walks on earth in his life trying to figure out, who do I hang out with? Who do I help in their life? Who do I build a relationship with because I want to be a blessing to the whole world because that's the promise of the Abrahamic covenant? So I'm going to pray for you, and then we're going to worship God. And we're not going to worship God out of this, good, God's going to bless me place. Instead, we're going to worship God out of this, I'm going to bless the world, and I'm going to feel this weird tension the rest of my life. And when I feel that weird tension, I'm no longer going to feel defeated. I'm going to feel like Jesus feels this weird tension too. As Jesus is ministering and loving the people that you love, and loving you, and making your name great, your name as a Christian, and making your nation great, your nation as the nation and the people of God. So let's stand. I'm going to pray for us. Jesus, in all of our tension, in all of our wondering, in all of our unknowing, we want to come to you. And sometimes, God, in my life, I've been in places and been in situations and been with people where I wonder... Should I be exiting this relationship? Should I be exiting this situation? And sometimes I think it's the right thing to do. Like sometimes I think there's places and people and things that could be done that I don't do because I think that's what it means to follow you. And all of us are making that decision. And God, sometimes there's times when I go, yeah, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to have a relationship with these people. And then I wonder in my head, what are my Christian friends going to think? And so I pray in two ways. I pray that you would give us an assurance of your spirit and your presence in our life in the tensions where we wonder how to love people and how to be a blessing and how to be in relationship with people. And then second, God, I want to, like, that's like Abraham. And then second, God, I want to pray for us as Christian friends because we're going to have people who come to us and say, I think God wants me to do this. And like Abraham's family, we're going to have a response into their life that can be dismissive or condemning or it could be supportive and loving without being permissive. God, we don't live in an anything-goes covenant with you. We live in this covenant with you where we desire to be a blessing to the whole world, that all peoples on earth will be blessed through us. Every person on earth will be blessed through us. And for a lot of people, God, that creates this weird situations and conflict. And I want to ask that you'll walk us through that. Make us the most awkward Christians. Make, put us in the most awkward situations and allow us to experience your spirit that never does what it's supposed to, that never follows the rules, but always loves the people. Thank you for loving us and allowing us to love the people that you love. Amen. Let's sing.